We have a uh, special guest visiting back with us after being gone a number of years. Many of you will remember him, Randy Sanford. Randy, come on up here and say hello. Just go ahead and preach. Let me tell you a funny story about that. I was on uh, television in Portland on the local TBS show, and uh, I had a series of four-square pastors, and they got to me. I was the last one, and he, and he had told me he was going to interview me, asked me some questions. He asked me a couple questions, and then he said, now just look there at the at the camera and preach, would you? <laughs> right. I thought to myself, I don't do that. You know, where's my notes? That's I right, didn't do yeah. that very well. <laughs> All right. Well, what's going on up in uh, Oregon? Well, I'm pastoring. I'm a senior pastor of a church in Portland, Oregon. I left here 10 years ago to start a church in um, Denver, Colorado in 1986. And uh, we were there for five years. And then my father was getting close to retirement and asked us to pray about coming to Portland. And so we did. And uh, we've been there for five years. And I just took over a senior pastor about two years ago. And that church is growing really well. It's about 1,500 people. We have a, a school that's part of the church and uh, just a fantastic staff to work with. So this week, you guys sent Greg Kolkel yes. our way. So yes. he's preaching in my pulpit Sunday, uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning. So I get to hang out here for the wow. weekend. I, sh- I should just have you preach here this weekend. That's <laughs> <laughs> good to see you. Looking good great. You. All right. You. God bless you, Randy. Right. Welcome back. Well, we're going to do Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. What a surprise, yes. All right. I want you to read with me um, verses 8 through 19. Yeah, don't get excited. Don't get too excited here. We're just going to read those verses. We're going to talk about Abraham, and we're going to talk about the life of faith. And uh, we're going to do this, Lord willing, in three weeks. So uh, you're going to get part one tonight. By faith, Abraham, this is verse 8, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance 
They admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now we're going to look at that passage over the next couple of weeks. I want to start tonight, and we're just going to look at verse 8. That's our start. We're going to build momentum. I want to suggest to you that there are, there are only two ways to live. And by far the most common way to live is to live by sight. The most common way to live is to live by sight. Most people and many Christians live by sight. That means they base everything on what they can see. They base everything on their experience. That's the most common way to live. But the second way is far less common, that is to live by faith. To base your life primarily and ultimately on what you cannot see. Now this is a challenge for us as Christians, certainly. And this is the Christian way of life. This is the Christian way to live. It's the way of faith. The Apostle Paul reminds us of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He says, we walk by sight, not by faith. Did I get that wrong? Oh, yeah. We walk by faith, not by sight. But, you know, we live in this world where we are so dependent on everything we see and everything we experience that very often, even in our, in our Christian experience, uh, we find ourselves slipping back into that pattern, that very human pattern of walking by sight, of living by sight, based on what just the things that we can see, the things that we can sense, the things that we can hear, uh, the things that we can touch and feel, uh, things that we experience, rather than uh, living by faith. We've never seen God, have we? We've never seen Jesus Christ. We've never seen the Holy Spirit. We've never seen heaven. We've never seen hell. We've never, never seen any of the people who wrote any part of the Bible. We've never even seen uh, an original manuscript of the Bible. Now think about this. We've never seen any of the virtues that God commands of us or any of the, the graces that he gives, and yet we see the results of them, don't we? See, we live in the certainty of all these things by faith. I believe that the Bible is true. But, but this translation is, is several translations removed from the original manuscripts. We don't have original manuscripts. 
There's a whole uh, school of thought about the, the abs- absolute, absolute dependability and the veracity of the scriptures that we have. The Bible is the Bible dependable. People today argue if there's, a, if there's a, a, an actual heaven or hell. People say you can't see God, therefore there is no God. And we live as Christians in the certainty of these things by faith. Though we can't see them, we can't reach out and touch them, we can't sense them with our human senses. What does verse 1 tell us? Faith is what? Certain of what we're being certain of what we do not see. We're certain of these things. We literally hang hang everything. We our, our our whole earthly life, our eternal destiny, everything on things that we've never seen. Think about that. Everything that we are, everything that we stand for, the way we live our life, all of it is based upon we're banking on things we've never seen. This is the way the people of God have always lived. This is the point of chapter 11. This is the point of chapter 11. Now remember the context is, is these Hebrew people. The writer is, is bringing them to a place where they must see that their only way to salvation is by faith, not by works. And he's going back and he's recounting all of the historical figures that they would be familiar with and that all of these people, in fact, live by faith. And now he's coming to the one preeminent example of faith, and that is Abraham. The life of faith has some specific elements, and these elements are uh, reflected in Abraham's life. We're going to look at those elements as we go through this little study on Abraham. Now, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, and as such, he's presented to these Hebrews, to which this, this letter is written, as the most strategic example of faith. He is preeminent. He's the most strategic example. They needed to realize that Abraham was more than just the father of their race. That he also was, by example, the father of of everyone who would believe in God. Now the rabbis taught, had long taught, that Abraham pleased God because of his works. This was common in rabbinical teaching. They taught that God looked around on the earth and he finally found an outstandingly righteous man, Abraham, who because of his goodness... God selected him to be the father of the chosen people. That's what the rabbis taught. Now that false teaching had to be countered. It had to be corrected. And it was necessary in order to correct it, to show from the Old Testament itself, from the Jewish scriptures, from the very book of Genesis, that Abraham was not righteous in himself, but was counted righteous by God because of his faith. All you have to do is open up the Bible to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. 
And it's in that one place where we see that the writer says that Abraham believed God. Just makes a statement. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what made Abraham righteous before God? Was it he was an outstandingly righteous guy? No, he believed God. He trusted God. He believed what God had said. Now for a Jewish person to accept the truth that salvation is by faith. And you know, I find this I find this really interesting because whenever I talk to people who are Jewish about what they believe Inevitably, they're, they're, they're into a works if they believe about heaven or at all, and God, most don't anymore. But I find that they believe in a salvation by works. I always like to take them back to Abraham. And I ask them if, if they have a Bible or if they have, if they have their scriptures, I'll ask them to go look up that one verse in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And then I ask them to respond to it. Most times, they, they don't have a response. I have to explain that to them, what that means. And go on to show that it's not by works, which typically most people, and, 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 and lots of Christians still are living their Christian life on the basis of works. Not by faith, necessarily. But for a Jewish person to accept the truth that salvation is by faith, he'd have to be shown that through the life of Abraham, his patriarch. Does that make sense? And that's exactly what the writer is doing. He is showing Abraham as the premier example of one who lived a life of faith. This same truth applied to Abraham as is to apply to these Hebrews. Now, the Jews were always right in looking to Abraham as a great example. The problem was that they looked at him in the wrong way. They looked at him as someone who gained God's favor by works. They knew that he had pleased God, but they had to be shown that God was pleased, not because of any good works that he had done, but simply because he believed God. Sometimes that's the hardest thing to grasp, because we believe God. We believe God. He then makes us right with him. And we're so into performing, aren't we? We're so into doing, so into achieving. We think, well, well, what do I have to do? No, I have to do something. Just believe. Just believe. Just as Abraham did. Abraham was the first established man of faith. And as such, now he is our pattern of faith and the pattern of faith for people of all time. Not just uh, Israel. Now, in this passage, from verses 8 through 19, there are five elements of faith that will show us, through Abraham's life, the complete pattern. We're going to see five things that give us, in, in, through Abraham's life, the complete pattern of a life of faith. And we're going to look at the first one tonight. And I call that the pilgrimage of faith. In verse 8, we look at the pilgrimage of faith. That pilgrimage begins with a call. It begins with a call. Turn back to Genesis chapter 11. 
We're going to read from uh, verse 27 through chapter 12, verse 5. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. This is the account of Terah. Now, Terah was Abram's father. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now Ur, that's a city, that's, uh, that's where they lived, and uh, that's where they grew up. Um, and in the land of his birth, Abram, Nahor, both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was uh, Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Great names. You want to be careful when you look into the Bible and name your daughters. <laughs> Iska. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. So here... Uh, Terah moves his family from their hometown, Ur of the Chaldees, and they're they finally settling in Haran. They were originally headed to the land of Canaan. Terah dies, verse, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. That's pretty substantial. God is calling him to leave everything that, that has any kind of, of meaning to him uh, and security. And he's calling him now to step out in this pilgrimage of faith. He says, uh, he says, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan and arrived there. So you see now God calls him on this pilgrimage to uh, go to the land of Canaan. So the pilgrimage begins with a call. Now, I don't think it was Abram's plan to leave Ur. I don't think it was his plan to leave Haran all by himself to go to Canaan. Uh, however, he was called by God, and only God knew what was in store for him. Think about this. God calls you, when you become a Christian, much the same way. God calls you to leave everything that means security to you. Everything that gives, in essence, gives your life identity and meaning and purpose, and he calls you to take all of those dependency needs and put them, put them on him. He says, trust me. I'm going to take you to a place that I'll show you when we get there. Does that sound exciting? Who would want a roadmap ahead of time? I would. I'd say, God, can we go down to the AAA office and get one of those, you know, trip track things, you know, with the green line they draw and... Tells you when to turn left and what time and such. Most of us would. See, we're so used to living by sight. 
the very thought of saying, trust me, come walk with me. And you say, where are we going? Well, I'll show you when we get there. How long is it going to take? Don't worry about that. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is what God's called him to. It's a walk of faith. It's a pilgrimage of faith. He was called by God, and only God knew. Abram didn't know what was in store for him. He, did, he knew generally they were going to be in the land of Canaan. He didn't know exactly where they were going to land. He didn't know any of the details about what God was going to do in and through his life. Now, Abram, interestingly, wasn't Jewish, and he wasn't a believer. He was a pagan, Gentile, uncircumcised idolater. Abram. That's how he started out. Yep. If you go back into Joshua, chapter 24, 24, verse 2, Joshua rehearses the history of Abram's family, and they were idolaters. Ur of the Chaldees, where he grew up, the the god that they worshipped there was the god of the moon. So Abram didn't start out Jewish, and he didn't start out a believer. God just called him. God always starts with raw material. Aren't you glad? (laughs) It wasn't as the rabbis taught. God didn't look over the earth to find the most righteous person he could find to make the father of his chosen people. He started with some very raw material. That gives me great hope. (laughs) That should give us all hope. But God called him out of his paganism. He called him out of his idolatry. Why? Why did God call him? If you go look back into into, uh, these verses in chapter 12. God called him out to bless him and to bless the world through him. Why does God call you out of the world? Why has God called you to walk with him? For the same reason that God called Abram. To bless your life and to bless the world through your life. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great prospect? And why did God choose Abram? Why did he choose Abram? He just chose him because he wanted to. So many times I'll say, I'll say God, why, why did you choose me? And it's just like, I just wanted to, dummy. Just, <laughs> come on, let's get with the program. You know, we, we, have this, we have this need to be recognized. We have this need to be patted on the back and to be told that we're doing good. And so we're always, we're always looking for and asking for affirmations, right? Now, affirmations aren't a bad thing in and of themselves. But you get, a, you get into a trap when you start looking for them and needing them. And you've heard me talk about, you know, the issue of, of, uh, of, 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 of being in love and telling somebody you love them. And they say, well, why do you love me? I just love you. But, but that's incongruous sometimes to us because we say, well, well, why do you love me? 
You have to have a reason to love me. No, I don't have to have a reason. I just love you. But why? Am I making sense? See, we think, God, why did you choose me? As if, as if well, there must be something in me that's, that's worth choosing. I just, I just love you. I just decided to choose you. I mean, that, that to me is mind-blowing. But it, I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful he chose me. He chose Abram because he wanted to choose him, not for any other reason. Remember, this is key because the Jews had been taught by their rabbis that, that Abram was chosen by God because he was righteous to begin with and because of his good works. When God spoke to him, he listened. Just like Noah, remember? When God spoke to Noah, did Noah quibble? Did he argue? No. Neither does Abram. Abram doesn't argue. He listened to God. When God promised, he trusted. When God commanded, he obeyed. Again, much like Noah. God called Abram to a pilgrimage of faith. He calls us to a pilgrimage of faith. When any person comes to God through Jesus Christ, God expects, indeed demands, a pilgrimage from the old pattern of living into a new kind of life. That's what he expects. Just as Abraham's faith separated him from his pagan and idolatrous, unbelieving ways and started him towards a new life and a whole new land. God calls us out of our unbelieving ways, and he calls us into this pilgrimage of faith. And he doesn't always give us the kinds of things that we want. He gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. He gives us each other. He gives us the vehicle of prayer. He gives us substantial resources, doesn't he? To live this life of faith, to walk this pilgrimage of faith. The question is, are we going to take advantage of, and do we, in fact, take advantage of the resources that he gives us? Because if we do, then we'll be less and less less dependent upon the need to see things, to experience things. Our faith will be strengthened. Our faith will be bolstered if we use the resources that he's given us for this walk of faith. Am I making sense? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 talks about this idea of, of leaving the old and, and uh, entering the new. Paul talks to us about if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. I, I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not a great believer in digging around in my past. I am a great believer in looking forward. I'm a great believer in trusting the promises of God. I'm a great believer in, in God leading me in the way that I should go as I continue to look to him. And yet, too many times, I think we're rooting around in our past, and we get immobilized, and, and all of a sudden, our faith begins to diminish, 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 and there's no real hope for the future. Real simple. Salvation brings separation from the world. 
Salvation brings separation from the world. Very simple. Jesus tells us in John's gospel and the in his high priestly prayer in chapter 17, he says, when he prays for us, he says, they are in the world, but they're not of the world. We're in it. We're, we're smack in the middle of it. But we're not of it. In other words, we don't participate, we don't buy into the, this world's value system any longer because we, we've been saved out of this world into a new life into a new, whole new value system as Christians. And what's exciting to me is that the Lord, the Lord himself works in the heart. He works in our heart so that we are willing. Now think about this. So that we're willing to leave behind everything that's not pleasing to him. God works that in our heart. God does everything and supplies us with everything we need. I love what he says through Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 36, verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart. God works in our hearts. And he gives us the total willingness to leave behind everything that's not pleasing to him. Now, he can't lead us into a new life, into a new way of living, until he leads us out of the old. Do you remember the example of Egypt? He had to lead them out of Egypt. And before he could even lead them out of Egypt, he had to create in them a tremendous dissatisfaction with living in Egypt. I mean, things got worse and worse and worse and worse for them, so they're crying out to God for deliverance. And then he sends Moses, and you know the whole story. So he gets them postured so that they're anxious to get out of there, and now, see, he's worked. He's worked in their hearts, hasn't he? He's worked in their hearts so that they're now wanting and willing to move forward. And he can't move them forward unless he brings them out. He doesn't move us forward unless he first moves us out. Does that that make sense? What's our response to that then? What's our response? We say, well, God, I don't know what you're going to do with me. (laughs) But I'm willing and I'm going to drop all those old things. See, I don't know what you're going to do with me. I don't know where you're going to take me. I don't know where... I had no idea when I became a Christian I'd be a pastor. That was the furthest thing from my mind. Furthest thing from my mind. And, you know, I think it's a good thing that God doesn't always tell us ahead of time where he's taking us. (laughs) I'm not sure we'd go. God, I don't know where you're going to take me, but I'm willing to drop these things. I don't even know what you're going to substitute for the things I'm going to drop. I don't even know what you're going to substitute for them. But nonetheless, I'm going to give them up because I know that your will is good and pleasing and perfect. I know that you have the very best for me. 
Remember we talked about this. We said, God, don't let me miss your will. We pray for our will all the time, don't we? We're all the time telling God what he should do for us. You know, every time I do that, very rarely are my prayers answered according to my will. And I get real frustrated. And then I have to stop and pull back and say, God, excuse me. I've been praying for my will. I want your will. I'm, I'm bright enough to know that your will is the very best. But I know the minute I pray that, I could be opening myself up for some grief. But at the same time, I know that he will bring me through it. He'll be the grace to sustain me. It's risky business being a Christian. It really is. See, that's the attitude of the faith pilgrim, isn't it? Lord, I don't know where you're going to take me. But I want to give these things up, and I, and I don't know what you're going to replace them with, but Lord, I know that you're, you've got the best things for me. I had a woman come to me last week, and she was, she was in love with this one man, and he'd gotten his ex-wife pregnant again, and, and now he wants to go make that right, and this poor woman is all emotionally involved with this guy. And I said, let him go. Let him go. And you could just see the pain in her expression, the pain in her face. The hardest thing in the world for her to do is to let this guy go. She has become emotionally attached to. Sad part about it is that she had also been physically attached to him. She makes it even worse, more difficult. But I told her, I said, don't you want God's very best? And if you love this man like you say you do, you want the very best for him, don't you? And as long as you're in there muddying the waters up, you're, you don't know what God's very best is. Take your hands off the situation. Just pray, Lord, give me your will, your very best. I don't want anything else. And then just trust him. Lord willing, I'll see her this week again. She may not want to come back. I don't know. You never know. Give people this difficult counsel. But the life of faith begins with the willingness It begins with a willingness to leave those places of sin and unbelief. To leave, literally, our own personal Ur of the Chaldees. God calls us out. We must be willing to go. We must be willing to walk with him. Giving up the old life is one of the greatest obstacles to coming to Christ. Do you know that? I've heard this over and over and over. People say, well, 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 what will I have to give up? I I say, give up everything. I just tell them the truth. I don't candy coat it for them. I say, if you're going to come to Christ, you've got to give up everything. Well, can I hold on? to No, you can't hold on to anything. You've got to give it all up. It's also one of the greatest obstacles to faithful living for those who are in Christ, for Christians, holding on to the old life. Now think about this. From the perspective of the old life, From the perspective of the old nature, the new life in Christ can appear dull, unexciting, and boring, can't it? 
I hear it all the time. Now, you have to understand, coming look, from a person who's not a Christian, they're on the outside. All they see is stereotype, go to church. And I, I hear this, well, what do Christians do for fun? <laughs> when I, uh, I tell this story, when I, when I, when I became a Christian... Uh, some friends of mine invited me to go to a party with them. I'd been witnessing to these guys, and they were buddies of mine, and we used to do a lot of partying together. And uh, they, were, uh, they were being kind of devious, and they were going to try to set me up and, and, and watch me fall. You know, I'd been carrying my Bible over the house and reading the Bible and talking to them about Jesus. And they, uh, they, they talked me into going to a party. I, I knew better than to go, but they talked me into going. So I prayed a lot, and I said, well, Lord, I said, I, I just want to be faithful. I don't know what's going to happen, but you just, you protect me at this party. Well, they had this girl set up who was, who was supposed to approach me. And sure enough, you know, she does. She comes over, and, and we start talking, and, and uh, <laughs> she said to me, you know, you, you know how you, you kind of get through the initial conversations of these new friendships? And we kind of got through those niceties. She said to me, can I ask you a personal question? I thought, oh, God, here it comes. <laughs> Lord, help me. Give me wisdom. She said, I said, sure, sure. I said, I have nothing to hide. What is it? What do you, what do you want to know? She said, what sign are you? <laughs> I thought, oh, God, give me wisdom on this one. What sign? Yeah. I thought, how profound. What sign am I? <laughs> and just in an instant, God just gave me this. It just came right out of the sky. I said, I'm ichthus. <laughs> she said, you are, you're, you're what? I said, I'm ichthus. She said, no, no, no. I, what, what sign are you? I said, I'm ichthus. That's great. I, I had it right there, man. It was just beautiful. She says, all right, all right, what's ichthus? I said, it's the fish. Now, if you know, you know the, little, the little fish? Ichthus is the Greek word for fish, and it's an acronym that means uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, okay? So if you get one from the bookstore, there's a little, there's a little legend that will tell you, explain it all to you. <laughs> Stick it on your car. Now, you know what an ichthus is. So I said, she said, what's the ichthus? I said, ichthus is the fish. She said, no, 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 that's not the fish. I said, yes, it is. She says, no, it isn't. I said, unless I'm mistaken, ichthus is the fish. She said, no, Pisces is the fish. I said, no, ichthus. And she says, all right, come on, what, what do you mean? What is this? And I said, well, and then I began to explain to her what that was. And I could just see her glaze over. And then she said this. I promise you. She says, she says, oh, how boring. I said, let me explain something to you. I said, I'm a Christian. And the Christian life is anything but boring. I said, I know you don't see it from your vantage point right now. Because when I was in your place, I didn't see it either. But now that I've become a Christian... 
living on this side, you don't know what it means to live on the knife edge of faith moment by moment. You want an exciting life. You live the Christian life. You don't know what God's going to do next. You don't know where He's going to take you. You don't know who He's going to put in your face. Come on. (laughs) And she just couldn't get over that. But what I'm suggesting to you is that you know, from the perspective of the old life, from the perspective of the old nature, and, and I think all of us can relate to this to some degree, that new life in Christ can appear dull and boring and unexciting. When we think of, when we, and when we think this way, we fail to understand that once we become a Christian, we are given a whole brand new set of values. We are given a whole brand new set of values. We are given a whole new set of interests. We're given brand new desires. God gives these things to us. When you become a Christian, He gives these. He gives us a new heart. And we can't experience these things in advance. It's only when you become a Christian. It's only when you respond to that call it's only when you begin that, that pilgrimage of faith that you begin now to experience this new heart and these new things. Beloved, we cannot see the blessings and the satisfaction of life in Christ before we trust in Him as Lord and Savior. It's only after. Jesus said it in John 3.3. 3. Remember to Nicodemus? He says, Nick, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You've got to be... You've got to take that step of faith. You've got to believe before you're going to see, comprehend, before you'll have the very capacity that will allow you to know these things. We believe, then we experience. Say that with me. We believe, then we experience. That's right. The force that makes us want to hold on to the old life, that force that makes us want to hold on to the old life, is sometimes called worldliness. Worldliness. And worldliness primarily is an attitude. It's primarily an attitude. By that I mean it is wanting to do things that are sinful. It's the wanting to do things that are selfish. It's the wanting to do things that are worthless. Whether or not we actually do them is not the issue. It's the wanting to do those things. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the essence of worldliness. That's the, that's the force that, that drives us to hold on to the old life. It's wanting people's praise whether we receive it or not. That's worldliness. It's outwardly holding to some high standard of conduct, but inwardly longing to live like the rest of the world. And the worst sort of worldliness is is religious worldliness because it pretends to be godly. The Pharisees uh, were so, so guilty of this. Jesus called them hypocrites. They were pretentious. And Jesus often pointed it out to them. That was not their favorite thing. Worldliness is not so much what we do 
as it is what we want to do. It's not so much what we do. It's not, it's not so much an act as it's what we want. It's internal. Remember, Jesus always said, it's what's inside a man. It's our motivations. It's what's in the heart. It's not determined so much by what our actions are as by where our heart is. Where's your heart? You know, some people don't, don't, and I had this conversation with somebody just earlier today, some people don't commit certain sins only because they're afraid of the consequences. They just don't do it because they're afraid of the consequences. Or they don't commit certain sins because they're afraid of what people will think. Or, or others will not commit certain sins or do certain things from a sense of self-righteous satisfaction in resisting. Ha, look what I can. I, can, I, don't, I don't have to do that. I'm, I can resist. I want to suggest to you, all the while having a strong desire to do those very things. So we think that having self-control over these desires is an admirable thing. I want to suggest to you, that's not where we need to be. We don't not do things because we're afraid of the consequences or what people will think. We don't do things because we don't want to do them. Because we have a new heart that God has given us. He's called us out of that world... And he's given us a new heart so that we can live a new life. So that we would have new desires, new interests, new joy. We could have a, 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 a truly fruitful life. So many times I, I, I see Christians just laboring and laboring and laboring. And I wonder if they're Christians at all. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have struggles in this life. What I'm suggesting to you is, is if, 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 if in your heart there is really no desire, you're just muscling it through, man, you best stop and, and check yourself out and see if you're in fact a Christian. Or maybe we have taught wrong and, and we bought into a bill of goods that allows for us to live that kind of legalistic life. And we don't really realize that God wants to give us a new heart. It's the desire for sin that is the root of worldliness. And this is what the believer is to be separated from. This is what the believer is to be separated from. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do we have that? Do not love the world. Or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can say, do not desire the world or anything in the world. Well, you should have a heart that desires not the world, but a heart, heart that desires what? God, the things of God. You see how loving the world can slow you down as a Christian? Loving the things of the world can slow you down as a Christian? Inhibit your testimony? James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? That's pretty strong language, isn't it? 
The question is, what do I really want? What do I really want? The root meaning of holiness is separation. God said, be holy because I'm holy. The root meaning of holiness is separation. That means separated out from the world, separated to God. My life is separated to God. That's what He wants. That's He wants me separate. He's called me out of the world. Called me away from the things that, that, that the world offers to me in terms of its affections and pleasures. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about living a, a, a life of, a, of asceticism. That we just wear camel skins and, you know, or what is it, horse hair. What did, what did John the Baptist wear? Camel hair. Camel hair, is that right? I can't remember what he wore. He just wore something. It, was, it wasn't very comfortable. I know that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about, we're talking about a desire, desires for for him, a heart for him. This is this is this is a Christian. One of the greatest and, and surest marks of the demise of worldliness in our lives is a change in desires, a change in loves. There's, there's, that's the best way to define and to determine the status or the state of your Christian life and experience, is what do you love the most, really? Who do you love the most, really? I tell husbands and wives who are embattled, I say, you, you're embattled because you don't love the Lord, really. If you love the Lord, you wouldn't be embattled. That doesn't mean you're not going to have problems. That doesn't mean you're not going to argue. What it does mean is that you, because you love the Lord, really, you're going to have a love for this other person, which will allow you to mitigate and to subjugate those issues that will normally tear people apart. As we grow in Christ and as we grow in our love for Him, our love for the things of the world diminishes. Our love for the things of the world diminishes. They will simply lose their attraction. People who are addicted to different substances, things, whatever, God gives them a new heart, and they're miraculously delivered. Miraculously delivered. And the issue is to keep that person, to disciple them, and to encourage them on, and to to be with them, so that what? So that the world doesn't get their hooks back in them. Beloved, we will not want to do them like we used to. We will not want to do things like we used to. The pilgrimage of faith begins by responding to God's call. It begins by responding to His call and then separating ourselves from the world system. And as we concentrate on Jesus, as we concentrate on fellowship with Him, soon we do not even care about the things that we once loved so much. We have, a, we have a trite little saying in the church. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You know, how, you know how full of meaning that is? That's what we're talking about. You keep your eyes on Jesus. 
you, you keep your, you keep your, your heart knit to his. You, you grow in the knowledge of Jesus and the grace of God. And these things will grow dimmer and dimmer. In fact, we sing a song like that, don't we? Keep your eyes on Jesus and these things will grow dimmer. Things of this world. Paradoxical as it may seem at first. The highest mark of spiritual maturity is being able to do what we want to. Let me say that again. The highest mark of spiritual maturity is being able to do what we want to. What does a mature Christian want to do? He wants to love God with his whole heart, love his neighbor as himself, worship God with his whole heart, invest himself in the things of God. That's what a mature Christian wants to do, and that's what a mature Christian will do. He will do what he wants to do. Look at Hebrews. We're going to flip over to verses 24 through 26 as an example. We're getting ahead of ourselves. It's talking about Moses here. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, and we'll revisit this passage much later. <laughs> much later. <laughs> By faith, Moses, when he had grown up... Now, look at, look at this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. I want to suggest to you that Moses didn't forsake Egypt because he had to or because he felt obligated to. He forsook the things of Egypt because he wanted to. He wanted to. Egypt had lost its attraction for him. It could not compare with what Christ offered. You see, he's on this side now. God had got a hold of his heart, and God had given him a new heart, and he began to see with new eyes, and he saw all the glories of Egypt that he had experienced. They paled in comparison to what God had prepared for him. You know, in this regard, the spiritually mature Christian is like the worldly person. In this regard, and in only this regard, he does what he wants to do. Does the worldly person do what he wants to do? Yes, but the mature Christian does what he wants to do. The only difference is this, that the mature Christian wants what God wants. Let me read to you. This is a quote. It's a statement found among the belongings of a young African Christian martyred for his faith. You know, we've been praying for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering persecution. Let me read to you this statement of his. He said, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, 
colorless dreams, lamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience, lifted by prayer, and labor by His power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my vision clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the face of an adversary, negotiate at the table of an enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Amen. So, beloved, we are called by God into a pilgrimage of faith. And it's a wholly different walk than many people are accustomed to. God has promised to give us a new heart. And with that new heart come new desires, new loves, new affections. But they all have a bent towards Him and away from this world. Understand, understand that worldliness and, the, and this call to world. The world is a, has a siren call, doesn't it? The devil is always blowing in our ears saying, Ooh, boy, that would be fun. Oh, that would feel so good. But you see, as we mature, as we mature, we want more and more and more what he wants. Lord, don't let me miss your will. I want what you want. And let this young man's testimony who was martyred for Christ, let it be something that reminds us and encourages us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do praise you tonight. We thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you have given us a new heart with new affections and new desires and new love. Lord, I pray that as we ponder these things, that the hold that the world has had on us in any way, Lord, that we would give those things up. That we would see that that you have much, much better rewards for us. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit we would be empowered to release those things that we still love of this world, that we still hold on to. Lord, you've said that we are in the world, but we're not of it. So we're looking for a better country and a, a better place. We're just passing through. We are pilgrims on our way to glory. 
I pray that, Lord, all of us would, would just long for a greater and greater taste of that glory. Thank you, Lord. Keep your heads bowed for just a moment. You know, there may be somebody here tonight that, well, you, you just, uh, God's talked to your heart tonight. And maybe you came because someone invited you or just came in by yourself. But you never knew Jesus and you didn't really have a relationship with God. The Bible says that all of us are sinners and all of us have fallen short of God's standard. It's only Jesus who can meet that standard. And not only does Jesus meet the standard, but he, he pays the price for everyone who falls short of it. That's all of us. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but live everlastingly. There is a hell and there is a heaven. Though we haven't seen them, we haven't experienced them, we, we believe that they are because the Bible tells us they're there. And God... God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. You say, Pastor, how, how, do, I, how do I come to God? Just like Abraham, just by faith, by believing what he says, by believing when he says you're a sinner, that you need to repent. You need to believe in Jesus who died for your sins. It's a done deal. It's already been done. A gift of eternal life awaits just awaits your receiving by faith. You just say, God, I believe this. That's how you become a believer. That's how you become a Christian. If, because you believe, God gives you a new heart, as we spoke about tonight, a whole new direction for your life. Now you can, in fact, please Him. The question is, are you ready and are you willing to respond to the call? Just as God called Abraham to leave his his, his life of, of, of idolatry and unbelief. He calls you to leave your life of idolatry and unbelief. If you're ready to do that, if you're ready to make a decision tonight, then I'd like to pray with you, but I don't want to pray by myself. I, I want to know that there's somebody who wants to pray. And you can signal me very simply just by standing up. As you stand, you take a stand for Jesus. Very simple. I'll know that you want to pray, and then we'll pray in just a second. Jesus talks about if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. That's why it's important to take a stand. Anybody else? Ready to make a decision for Jesus? Now, some others of you right now who God's spoken to about letting go of some things uh, some of the wants of this life. And you may say, well, they're legitimate wants, Pastor. Yeah, but if you look at them, and if they are in any way inhibiting your spiritual growth and maturity, then you may want to reconsider whether they're legitimate wants or not. But God's spoken to you. 
and you're ready to make a decision to let go because you want God's best. I'm going to ask you to stand also before we pray. Pray with me. God, thank you for calling me tonight. Thank you for speaking to my life and to my heart. And I'm responding. I give my life to you. And those things that I hold on to and I love of this world, Lord, I release them. I don't know where you're going to take me. I don't know what you're going to do with me. I don't know what you're going to replace all these things with. But I know that you're going to replace them with good things. I know you promised to bless me and to bless others through my life as I commit myself to you, as I trust in you. So God, I give my life to you tonight. I recommit myself to you. And I do so in Jesus' name. Lord, you know my heart right now. And I just pray that you'd strengthen me by your spirit and fill me with fresh new desires for the things that you want. Lord, you said that if we would delight in you, that you would give us the desires of our heart. So we look to you now, and we give you thanks, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Hallelujah. God is good? All right. Well, let's stand and let's, let's let him know that we, we believe he's good all the time. And let's praise his holy name one more time. Let's sing from the sunrise.
Sunshine.